Interview number 110, Rafe Martin, Zen and the Art of Spiritual Storytelling. Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. Folk tales. They are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know yourself. Follow your passion. And live with grace. Hey, welcome to The Art of Storytelling. This is Brother Wolf, and I am so glad that you have come here, that you have wandered through the wild world out there, that has so many other things you could be doing. And I am so grateful that you have taken the time to come here and to spend a little of your precious seconds on this earth with me and my guest, Rafe Martin. We are going to discuss the most interesting and amazing secrets of the Zen. Not just kidding. We're going to talk about how story applies within the development of spiritual awareness. And we're going to talk about oral narrative and the tradition of Zen. Now, I, I, I say this every time. I know I say this every time, but I want to say it one more time. And, and I'm sorry for those, those of you who have heard it a hundred times, but, but listen carefully here. I know that you're doing many important things right now. I'm, and maybe you got the TV on. Maybe you got the radio on. Maybe you're, you got, you know, three kids and that's, that's cool. The kids are cool. But if the radio's on, the TV's on, maybe it's time you turned it off. And maybe you, you could put aside that book. And, and maybe if you're doing the laundry, you can keep folding, I guess, but, the dishes might be too distracting. So just sit down and really enjoy, really spend this hour with us in its completeness. Because that really is what Zen is about, right? Doing one thing at a time. So you might as well start practicing right now. Uh, my guest is Rafe Martin. And Rafe is the author of over 20 books that have been translated into many languages all over the world. Rafe has appeared in thousands of schools, libraries, festivals, and conferences, including the National Storytelling Festival. In schools, he works with all grades and ages, kindergarten through college and adult, telling stories and sharing an empowering vision of language, writing, creativity, and imagination. He leaves listeners with an awareness of their own power to create. He offers writing, storytelling, and professional development workshops, as well as adult and family performances. He's performed at many amazing festivals and conferences, and I don't really feel the need to list them all. You can go to his website at rafemartin.com and read about them yourself. He is keynoted at the American Library Association, the New York Library Association, etc., etc. An amazing list here of, of places he's been. Rafe has a master's degree in English, and he has actually lectured and spoken on Zen um, in many fine institutions around the country. Rafe, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, my pleasure to be here. Rafe, do you have a story you can share with us? It's one of the oldest stories in the world. It comes out of the Mahabharata, which is, you know, the great Indian epic, which is kind of like uh, in length about eight or ten Iliads and Odysseys woven together. So if you're ever lost on a desert island, uh, that would be the book to take with you. Uh, hopefully you'll be rescued before you finish. But in many, you could almost say it contains the germs, the seeds of almost every story you could think of. And uh, there's a terrific episode in the Mahabharata, uh, which deals with uh, the Pandava brothers and the true king, Yudhisthira, who's one of the brothers, who has a weakness, which is gambling, which is, in a way, a kind of profound insight into the nature of the universe. Uh, and... Uh, he gets slipped some loaded dice in a, in a dice game, and he keeps betting, and he keeps losing, and he keeps betting, and he keeps losing until he's lost the entire kingdom, everything. And he and his five brothers and their wife, they share a wife, Dalkadi, are kicked out, and they're sent into the dark, wild forest. They have no home. They have no shelter. They have no friends. They have no anything. And they're living alone in the wild forest. And this is the true king. And uh, one day he realizes that his brothers are missing. And they'd gone down to the river to get water. So Yudhisthira, the, the true king, goes down to the river. And there he finds his four other brothers lying on the riverbank fast asleep. He's astonished. 
And he goes over to them and he starts, you know, shouting, wake up, wake up. But they don't. They just lie there breathing. And he shakes them, each one. Wake up, wake up. They don't. They don't wake up. They're in like a, a death-like, a death-like sleep. And uh, then a voice rises from the river. And the voice says, I put all your brothers into a death-like sleep. Because they could not answer three questions. If you can answer my three questions, your brothers will rise from their death-like sleep, and you yourself will not fall into such a sleep. Are you ready to answer my three questions? And Yudhisthira says, I will do my best. The river asks Yudhisthira the first question. And the first question is, what is the swiftest thing? And Yudhisthira says, thought. Thought is the swiftest thing. Because we have a thought, and we have another thought, and another thought. And before we know it, we've created the whole world out of our thoughts. And we don't even realize this is what we're doing. It happens so fast. We believe our thoughts. And then we live in the world of them. And the river says, yes, that is correct. Then the river says, what? is the most amazing thing. And Yudhisthira says, the most amazing thing is that every day we rise from sleep and we, we walk along the very precipice of life and death each day and we do not tremble with awe. And the river says, yes, that is the most amazing thing. Then the river asks, what is inevitable? And Yudhisthira says, happiness. And the river says, yes. And his brothers wake from their death-like sleep. And they eventually go back and reclaim the kingdom. Many terrible things happen. It's almost like a Lord of the Rings kind of thing where you're looking at the past age of the world. But in the process, we can begin to see that all of us, all of us in a way, have come down from the Pandavas, and we are all children of the true king who did not fall into a death-like sleep and woke his brothers from their sleep. That's excellent. Do you feel sometimes like these stories, any story that has spiritual teachings, biblical or any other tradition, that there's a huge danger of misinterpretation of Absolutely. the story. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm not much of a uh, really knowledgeable about the Bible, but I know there's a, a statement about the devil can quote scripture. And you could use any great story for the most uh, kind of malicious ends. You could find who knows what in a story that could be a story of great kindness and great compassion, but it can be twisted, anything can be twisted. Uh, it all depends on the motives of the teller and the situation. You know, the imagination has both light and dark, as we've seen in history. You know, there have been great teachers and great storytellers. Uh, there's also been demagogues who've been able to manipulate whole populations uh, through the power of imagination, but using it uh, malevolently or selfishly or cruelly. Um, you know, I, I, I don't have an answer for that. I would just uh, say that the possibilities exist that we could not imagine, I would say. If we're coming to something with good heart and good mind, that's what we would see. But who knows what might be possible? A story is a very complex history. Uh, I think just historically, let's say, of Germany, where the Grimm's Brothers' tales, for the most part, are stories of very strong ethic. You know, where only the good, the kind, the true, the persevering character uh, triumphs and the selfish, the cruel, the greedy, the malicious is always either punished or driven out of the story. And yet look what happened uh, in, you know, the middle of the 20th century in Germany. So stories are no guarantee, but they certainly can be very, very important guides uh, in terms of leading us in the right directions. There's no guarantee, and I think that's you know why human life is so complex. We have to make choices, even with the guides 
Uh, we might find uh, a message that would totally surprise you and me in a story that we love. Someone else, you never know what they might do with it. It's a long answer to a short question, but <laughs> yeah. I want to look at the basics here. Um, someone who may be listening to this who has no familiarity with what Zen is. Oh, well. I, I know I'm asking you to, to codify a whole sort of religious sect that prides itself on not being codifiable. <laughs> but what is Zen? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> you know, getting up in the morning and brushing your teeth uh, is Zen. Uh, you have to do that for yourself. No one can do it for you. Uh, you might, in a way, say that's the essence of Zen. And just because you're aware or interested in spiritual things or meditating or whatever it is you do, uh, unless you also remember to tie your shoelaces, zip your fly, and brush your teeth, uh, your day will not go as smoothly as it might have. So uh, not to be flip or snotty, I think that's about the best I could tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so you're taking the answer of the three students who met and talked about their teachers? Gee, I don't know that story. <laughs> the three students came together and they said... Uh, uh, I said, my, my master's amazing. Oh, my master's amazing. Oh, my Zen master's even more amazing than yours. Oh, really? What can yours do? Oh, my master can, can fast without food for 30 days. Oh, my master can go without water for six days. What can your master do? They said, last didn't. Oh, well, my master eats and sleeps and walks. Well, what's so special about that? Well, that's all he does when he doesn't. When he eats, he just eats. Now, it doesn't mean cutting off thoughts. Many people misunderstand Zen to think it's anti-intellectual. But actually, really great uh, teachers in China and Japan were extremely talented intellectually, philosophically, artistically, uh, philanthropically as well. Um, so Zen isn't about cutting off thoughts. It's not, well, you shouldn't be thinking of anything else when you're eating. It's that you eat so completely that what's in front of you is yourself. You tie your shoe and the shoe isn't something uh, like an object because there's no subject looking at it. It's being present. So if thoughts arise, then in that presence, thoughts arise as well. Uh, it's a very liberating tradition. And, you know, to get more philosophical about it, we could say that's what Zen is, is about. It's it's also very deeply, some people think you can separate Zen from Buddhist tradition. Now, you can, but you need some tradition for it to work within. Uh, though there can be, to, well, let me modify that, there can be atheistic Zen as well, but that's not the tradition. Zen is a Buddhist tradition, which means attempting with your life to uphold the vows of the Bodhisattva, which is the same path as you know, like the Dalai Lama, which is to liberate all beings. Now, how do you do that in your own life? It's going to be in very small ways. You know, that's a long road. So there's matters of patience and awareness and compassion and learning little by little to be a little wiser, a little more compassionate, a little, which really means being a little less self-involved. And that is the path. Uh, to learn to drop the self in the little things of life, in the encounters with people, in the brushing your teeth, and your tying your shoelaces, and going out and telling stories. Hello, I'm Jim May, and you're listening to The Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. So how does Zen, and how does the, especially, well, I guess by definition, Zen is Japanese, <laughs> actually, it's Chinese. Uh, Zen is actually Japan's interpretation of Chan, which is a kind of Chinese uh, pronunciation of Jhana, which is a Sanskrit word, which is D-H-Y-A-N-A. Jhana means meditation. So, in a way, you would say, originally, Zen would be seen as the meditative aspect of Buddhist tradition. And in China, it connected with Taoism, which was, you know, the world of real awareness of the natural world, of the rivers, the mountains without end. Uh, as one of our great Zen elders and writers, Gary Snyder, has talked about, uh, mountains and rivers without end. And uh, the connection of Taoism uh, in, and Buddhism in China 
led to the development of this very natural, spontaneous, nature-oriented practice and awareness, uh, which became Zen in Japan. But it was Japanese monks, Buddhist monks, going to China who learned Zen practice and brought it back to Japan, where it became... They Japanized Chan to Zen, but it really means meditation. So how within the Japanese Zen tradition is storytelling used to support the development of that tradition? Oh, well, that's an interesting question. Now, let me clarify a little bit. I mean, I started full-time storytelling back in 1983. Uh, My first book came out in 1984, but I began Zen practice in 1970, and I began telling stories at children's events at the Rochester Zen Center. So um, connection with Japanese Zen really began for me with my own personal uh, storytelling because I came to uh, the Rochester Zen Center back in 1970 when Rosen, my wife and I came when my, our son was eight weeks old so we needed to be involved with stories and this is going to be a long answer so hang on I will get there the teacher at the Rochester Zen Center one of the pioneering founding western teachers it was in part his story and his book that drew us because he had been the court reporter for the Nuremberg War Trials and then the Tokyo Trials. And it was seeing all that suffering uh, and taking down all the testimony of the war crimes uh, that really opened up his heart to why is there all this suffering in the world. And in Japan, he felt that uh, the Japanese he spoke with after the war took responsibility for their own suffering in a way that he hadn't seen in Europe. And they said it was, and they gave him a Buddhist concept. They said it was karma because of the, the cruelty that we presented to the world. It's natural that we should suffer as a consequence. And he felt a great deal of peace when he walked beneath the giant trees in the Zen monasteries when he had his breaks between taking down the testimony at the Tokyo trials. And that eventually led him to uh, D.T. Suzuki, Columbia University, when John Cage was also there listening to Suzuki, and then he sold his court reporting business and moved to Japan and began to train in Zen. And that story, this, I told you, it was a long answer, is going to drew me deeply, in part because my wife, Rose, was born uh, in a di- displaced persons camp after the Holocaust in World War II. So she came to the States out of that whole world. So there was a lot of story that made Zen, for me, an important route. Now, in Zen tradition, there are several lines of teaching. Um, One line is to... uh, The foundation, though, is seated meditation. The the, The importance of that is to bring it out into life, to be engaged with the world, not just to sit there like a stone. Now, there's one school of Zen, which is really about when you're in the sitting room called the Zendo, you just sit. It's called thinking, not thinking. Let everything go. Just let everything go and pay attention to whatever is happening, your breath, your body, the sound of the wind. But in the line of Zen that I've been involved with is called koan practice. And koans are the folklore of Zen. They are the encounters of great teachers in China. And Japanese uh, Zen goes back to these Chinese encounters, as does all the Western Zen teaching today. And there are hundreds, maybe 700 or so koans that, as a Zen student, you would work your way through. So these encounters... Uh, and spiritual practice uh, is really built around uncovering layer within layer uh, of story that bring you into the present. And resolving this is checked by a teacher with each one. And there are layers within each of these very, very short encounter stories that a teacher would then check you on to see if you were uh, really have really realized the essence of this moment that the story was bringing to you. It's not history. It's not the past. It's this moment, right here, right now. The sound of the cars outside this window. The, uh, the, the, the atmosphere of, of warmth in the room. 
It's this moment that every story really returns us to in Zen tradition. And it's a great foundation, obviously, for storytelling. And, of course, all teaching traditions, uh, Judeo-Christian, Muslim, uh, Buddhist, whatever, all teach in parable. Uh, Story does more to open us to reality, even though the stories could be fiction, than any other tool or any other technology human beings have yet discovered. So a long answer to a short question, but the teaching line of Zen that I've been working in for the last 40 years is a story-based tradition. Uh, One of the great American Zen teachers, is a very short quote I'll end this answer with, Robert Aiken Roshi in Hawaii, who died about a month ago, was really a brilliant uh, teacher and a really uh, brilliant man and very gentle, very insightful guy, said folk tales are the koans of the world community. Koans are the folklore of Zen. And I think traditional tales function very much like koans in traditional communities, which is why I think it's very important to pass them on that they're the nubs of uh, good and evil, masculine, feminine, community and self, uh, which are encoded uh, and there for us to be embodied and opened up in the telling of traditions all around the world that are our own nature. It's not like we're just one culture or another. Genetically, we are uh, of one nature. Fran Stalling said, and she says at the beginning of every one of my shows in the opening music, she says, folk tales are messages from the ancestors. Yes, yes, I, I totally agree. And of course, uh, if you go back far enough, uh, every one of our ancestors was sitting around a fire telling stories. Each one of us carries all those stories within us. And the stories of the world are the stories of our own nature unfolding in different sequences and different circumstances. Are you willing to show us one of these Koans? I, I wouldn't show you a koan, but I, I, I could relate one to you. And a koan, let's get clear, simply means, the word simply means etymologically a public case, like a law case. In other words, when there's a, a precedent in, in, in the legal system, it means that you can test everything else against it. And a koan simply means that in this encounter, uh, something archetypical is revealed. And in that archetype, you can test your own personal understanding and have it confirmed or it doesn't or it hasn't really matched the, the case. And so your understanding is still would be considered deficient or unclear. You'd have to continue working on it. I'm, I'm really fascinated with this because I am I imagine this to be very similar to what when I when I see the documentaries on the Tibetan monks getting their training, you see them repeating these cases against each to That's each other. different. Those are brilliant intellectual arguments where they're refining their understanding of the uh, written points of Buddhist Dharma. Uh, and that is different. They're not checking each uh, on terms of, in ter- as far as I understand, in t- and I have a number of friends who are in Tibetan tradition, but um, they're not, uh, what they're doing is checking to make sure that they really can expound the intricacies of the written dharma, that is, the law, as it's uh, written in the texts, that they're absolutely clear, can handle it mentally, can express it, can clarify it, can debate on it, and it's a way of integrating you know, that understanding into every fiber of their being. And that's a bit different, because the koans are really about checking a wordless realization and not doctrine. And it could be the response to a koan could be completely not doctrinal. It could be something as simple as saying, uh, caw, caw. And it's the sound of the the crow would be making outside the window at the moment. Or it could be as simple as uh, saying, gee, how are you doing? In other words, but that would be a correct response to to the case of the koan. It wouldn't be a doctrinal point. It would be an expressing of it and personalizing it and making it intimate. And, of course, that's what we do in storytelling. When you're telling a mythic tale, uh, you try and make it intimate and personal. When you're telling a personal story, you try and find what's universal and mythic in it. Otherwise, why would somebody want to listen? What would its value be? So let's see. 
I mean, there are classic koan cases in the way Zen tradition works. Uh, uh, someone who's starting, and you need to work with a teacher to do these because you can't check your own realization of, of the koan. Uh, and you can go through many complex mind states and conditions in working on a koan because you have to really let everything go. Who knows what might come up? So you have to be really ready for the unknown, which is why the guidance of a teacher in koan practice is essential. It's not something you do on your own, whereas the just sitting just letting everything go, which is great practice for storytelling. To, you know, because when you're telling a story, unless you can stand on stage empty and silent and letting the audience come into you, you're going to keep filling the airwaves with gab and there's no silence in your story. So the just sitting aspect of Zen can be very useful to storytellers. But in koan practice, there are certain very direct and very difficult uh, in some ways, uh, koans to resolve. And sometimes it can take anywhere from three to 20 years before you, you, you'll be passed on this one first koan. So this is a commitment and patience in uh, um, some degree of faith. Because what Zen says is that there is a true nature. It is so yourself, you don't even notice that it's there. It is what you think is not who you are. Who's thinking? Who's the thinker? Who's the hearer? Who's the smeller? Who's, who, who are you in reality? And most of us are lost in dreams, thoughts, most of the time, as that little story of Yudhisthira at the river points to, which is from Hindu tradition. So what's called initial or breakthrough koans, because you're aiming what we call, you know, what's called provisionally, what meaning does it really have? Uh, enlightenment, some degree of realization of your true nature is what enlightenment would mean. Um, there are certain koans that aim exactly at that. And uh, one would be uh, Joshu, one of the great Zen masters in China, whose monastery, actually, I told a Buddhist tale at about four years ago in China, Joshua was asked by a monk, uh, does a dog have Buddha nature? Because in the sutras, the doctrinal texts, let's say that the Tibetan monks would be clarifying and, and doing brilliant uh, uh, exposition of, uh, it says that all beings, not just human beings, all beings have Buddha nature. So the monk says, does even a dog have Buddha nature? The implication, of course, being that Gosh, do even I have it? I don't see it. If even a dog has it, then I must have it. Where's mine? And Joshua's response was moo, which means no or not in Chinese. But the question is, how come if the sutras, that is the written teaching, say that every being, all beings, come into all life, Every sentient being, which is why the vow of the Bodhisattva is to liberate all beings, because all beings have one nature. If all beings have this Buddha nature, how could the great Zen master, who's a deeply enlightened man, say no? And you might spend three, four, five, ten, fifteen, twenty years working on that until there's a realization of it. And then there's about 700 other koans that you would continue to work on under the guidance of a teacher. So you do these long periods of sitting, sometimes week-long. They're called sashin, which means to touch the mind, your fundamental mind. And the teacher would check you two or three times a day on mu. Another famous koan is the sound of a single hand. Everyone knows that, right? We all have terrific, funny joke stories. Well, but let's say it because someone listening doesn't. Okay, so the, 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 you know the the sound of a single hand koan is you know here's the sound of two hands, right? What's the sound of a single hand? It can take many years to really be able to present that to your teacher. And it doesn't necessarily mean having an exposition of it at all. It means being able to demonstrate it with your whole body, your whole mind, like you're telling a story, which is what we do when we tell stories. It's not just a stream of language. It's our whole body presenting the characters of the story. Or there's a famous Zen koan, 
what's your face before your parents were born? What's your original face there before even your parents were born? How would you show that to a teacher? So you can see these these kind of go, you go kind of like, duh? How? How do you do that? How could you, how could that, how could I? And you'll spend like, it could be 10 years, you know, sitting, crossing your legs, getting up, going about your life, doing your job, raising your family, going to movies, playing ball with this question in the back of your mind. And it creates an intense focus, concentration. So willpower is transformed by this. Uh, attention is transformed by this. And eventually, the inner and outer worlds uh, uh, are not two things. There's a kind of moment of, ah, it's not like uh, somebody hits you with a hammer. It's kind of like, ah. And then you one day you go before your teacher and just show him. And he goes, okay, on to the next one. And as I said, there could be, you know, 700. It's a lifetime's worth of work, but it's built around story. And I think it helps, for me, it was a very important road because it helped to empower uh, the way I, I look at stories and tell stories and think of them as the world's koans that I can work on in public, not in private with my teacher as I do with the Zen koans, but in public with the community. Because traditional tales really connect us with things we all think about, all experience. And uh, they're the koans of our humanity. Well, I, I can't leave the topic of Zen without bringing this issue up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because uh, Americans focus on this a lot. When they hear Zen, many Americans you know, say, okay, what is, is Zen is all about enlightenment, as, as, some, as some Americans focus on it. Because you know, we're sort of like, you know, how do you get how do you win, is the question. In Japanese Zen, the experience of so-called experience of enlightenment is called Kensho. Satori is usually reserved for very, very deep experiences that for, open you up completely from top to bottom. And, uh, but Kensho is having some degree of insight. And there is a proclivity in American practitioners, uh, those who go to Zen, because you feel like, well, enlightenment's going to solve my problems, right? So in one fell swoop, if I just get it, I'm free, I'm safe, I'm, you know, I can play the piano better than ever, or whatever it is that's in your mind that you're going to get. First thing is you're not going to get anything. I mean, enlightenment uh, is, is a, in some ways, a silly and, and um, a confusing notion. Uh, Zen tradition emphasizes that you're not going to get anything because you've already, your original mind has been there from the very beginning. You can't get what you've already got. It's just that you've forgotten that you have it. So there's nothing you're going to get. And there are people who get on what's called like a Kensho Safari, which is they'll practice Zen very intensely, and then they'll have some kind of breakthrough experience, it's called. And then they, they stop practicing because they think that was the point. Uh, but Zen tradition emphasizes that's not the point at all. The point is to live uh, a decent ordinary, helpful life in your daily existence. And the best way in Zen tradition, every tradition has its own way to that. The best way in Zen tradition to do that is to to sit, uh, to work with the teacher, and to uh, uh, live by basic rules of decency, kindness, generosity. Uh, and this is what Zen teaching is about, is how to live a daily life in the short time we each have on this earth that's meaningful, that's satisfying and helpful to the world, to your community, to the other lives and life forms, as we're now seeing the terrible consequences of human egotism in the destruction of environments and life forms that have been here for millions of years. Zen simply says, how do you live in the midst of that with some sense of peace and decency and love? Uh, and this is not something unique, but thinking that having an enlightenment experience is suddenly going to make you a super person and now you're free to do whatever the heck you want is a very, very limited understanding. And it's something that, as you said, uh, Americans particularly, you know, it's like bagging a big game on safari and then you go home with the trophy. Forget it. Remember how to tie your shoes and brush your teeth, which is why I said that at the very beginning. Remember how to help a friend, you know. Remember how to listen to 
the people you work with when they're having difficulties. Remember how to straighten out a problem with someone who may dislike you or you find yourself disliking. How do you deal with these very ordinary challenges of life? Um, we're all going to face those challenges, and enlightenment adds nothing to that except a willingness to work on it, perhaps. That's what my old teacher used to say. He used to say over and over, all it's going to do is maybe give you a little more willingness to work on the things rather than running away from them. Uh, the story that comes to mind for me is the the master picks out the student, of all the students in, in the... Um, I want to say monastery, but picks out all the students in the monastery and says, "You're enlightened now." And <laughs> so the other, the other students are like, "Whoa!" And they come to him and say, "What's it like?" And he says, "It's kind of the same." It's not just, not just kind of the same. From what I know of the teachings, it's exactly the same. There's no difference. And in fact, there are koans that deal exactly with that. What's it like before? What's it like after? You know. There's no difference at all, because there's nothing you're going to gain. So this, this comes into the question of spiritual storytelling, or storytelling that have okay. spiritual teachings, and in that many times people listen to the story because they have an agenda of learning a secret. Mm -hmm. right. And then they discover in listening to the story, or after they discover, that the secret is very... It's very easily found. I mean, the secret is not that. I mean, it's 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 very common wisdom, you know. And then they have a reaction to that. What's the reaction? <laughs> well, a sense of um, of a letdown, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, you know, uh, my old teacher. I've worked with several really terrific teachers. Uh, four actually have been very instrumental over the last forty years. Uh, and I spent about um, 20 years with my first teacher, maybe a little bit more. We became very, very close. And I was his editor for his last two books. He died about five years ago. He was like 91, the guy who has been the court reporter for the Nuremberg trials. He used to always say, you know, Zen is an open secret. There's nothing hidden in it at all. It's just that sometimes the simplest things are the hardest to realize. And there is an issue about people go, you mean that's it? That's it, that's all, and actually the point is that is all, and that is it, but there's still a lifetime of work ahead of you to really embody that nothing at all, that simplest of things in every little action and interaction of your life where you're still going to be tied up in your own past conditioning, in your own you know, fears, in your own jealousies, in your own issues, and how do you unwrap the world from your grasp uh, and that's a lifetime of effort even if you've had some realization of the simple nothing that's there truth then if you're serious about it there's a lifetime of work of not continuing to impose your conditioned little greedy selfish scared self on the world and to free the world you really have to free it of yourself without harming yourself without suppressing yourself, without being angry at yourself, without beating yourself. That's a lifetime of work, to just be yourself, but to be your real self, which is kinder, uh, braver, and more generous than we generally give ourselves credit for. Uh, but it can take a lifetime of work to allow that, allow that, not to get it, but allow that to be what you live from. So the getting it can be very, I mean, that's it. But then there's a lifetime of work of embodying it, which is the telling of your true story. This is Elizabeth Ellis, and you are listening to The Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. So another thing that happens with spiritual stories mm -hmm. is that people hear them. This happens a lot in Zen. Mm -hmm. And I might actually be a living example of that in some ways. <laughs> Well, that's a very honest and humble statement, isn't it? <laughs> they hear, they hear stuff, they hear a story, and it's out of the context of the faith. Right. You know, I love Zen stories. I collect them, like, Neat. like some people collect um, leaves or stamps. Right. And but they're out of context, just like stamps yes. are out of context. Yes. And 
And so that's a great image because the stamp is bent to get a message from one person to another. Instead, you put it in an album and it's just as a stamp. It's an aesthetic object. I think that's a great uh, way of looking at collecting Zen stories because the story had a function. And someone might have worked on one of those stories for five or 10 or 20 years before its function really functioned. So collecting them is a kind of, um, you know, kind of aesthetic delight because uh, they are neat stories. But thinking that we understand them um, puts them in a very different this, catalog. This leads me to the next question, which is that if I take those stamps, it's actually not the metaphor does not continue. Okay, well, <laughs> but, <let's switch. laughs> but if I take this this material I've collected right. and I expose it to an audience, as some of the books I have have done. Mm-hmm. Am I then taking a situation where a Zen teacher is losing a set of tools? That if somebody reads this this story at the wrong time, is it then therefore not as useful? It doesn't have the surprise factor. You know, is the one hand clapping one of those things that was so useful back in the day and then it got out and now everybody knows it and so it's it's not doesn't have that surprise anymore? Okay, that's a very good question. So let's <clears throat> change not the metaphor, but the context a little bit. You mentioned it's taken out of the context of faith. But in Zen, faith is really only expressed in the actual practice. In other words, faith means you walk into a Zendo, you sit on a, a, a cushion, you cross your legs, and you work at it. There are street Zen practitioners. Street? Yeah. What do you mean? Maybe they don't, maybe within your tradition you feel like that's outside the tradition. No, no, no. what do you mean? Like, people you mean? who say that Zen can only be practiced outside of a of a, a Zendo. Is that the right word? Zendo? Yeah. Yeah. How could they do that? <laughs> it's like saying Well they're saying that Zen is in its entirety meant to be practiced um in the world. Of course. If you don't spend your life in the Zendo you sit for an hour, half an hour, and then you go out into your life. Maybe I'm just speaking of Americanized Zen that's, that's lost you, the root. Of you mean people who never go into a Zendo and never work with the teacher and say that's how Zen is supposed to be taught? No, I don't think they say it's supposed to be taught. I think they just say that's the way it could be taught. Well, I think that they're deluding themselves, to be honest. It's like saying, well, um, I can tell a story because I've read all these stories in a book, only I never get up on stage and tell my story to an audience. But this just illustrates the example of when you have a tradition where the oral tradition mm-hmm. is broken by the by the book. Or well, by I, I see what you're saying. Going back to like, well, everyone knows one hand clapping. So, or it's actually the translation is what's the sound of a single hand? It's actually not this, not the sound. What's the sound of one hand clapping? But that's a popularization of it. When you work with a teacher, they really work. What's the sound of a single hand? Um, however, there's no surprise value in it. It doesn't matter at all. The issue of the popularization of it, people may think they understand it, but unless it's checked by a teacher who actually has realized uh, what the practice is aiming at and is able to embody it, uh, I think they're uh, fooling themselves. I mean, so this, there is a hard line that I'm going to draw, which is that oral tradition <clears throat> is an apprenticeship uh, with a mentor, whether you're talking about learning how to paint oil, oil painting, whether you're talking about uh, music, uh, whether you're talking about uh, carpentry, you know, to work with a master carpenter, uh, and, or whether you're talking about a spiritual tradition. Uh, there is a sense of apprenticeship uh, and mentoring. Uh, in, Zen is an oral tradition. I mean, it's not, it, it, to really be doing it, you really need to be working with a teacher. And uh, someone might have some very clear-mindedness and be really inspired by Zen writings and be moved by them and have, you know, moments of clarity. I know Aiken Roshi, who is one of the really great American teachers, was incarcerated in Kobe, Japan, during World War II. He had been an engineer on one of the islands in the Pacific and uh, for the Army and was brought back to Japan, put in a prisoner of war camp. And there he met uh, R.H. Blythe, who was a great, who was in the same camp, who had written this fantastic book 
on what was it Zen in Western literature or something. It's an old old classic, and uh, Akinoshi was given this book by his Japanese guard, who kind of was drunk one day and tossed it in and said, yeah, "You're interested in Zen? Here's this you know book of Western literature." <laughs> and he began reading it, and he said. Every time he came to a particular place in this book, he said it wouldn't wouldn't be an enlightenment experience, but there was some something, some moment of clarity and perception. Now you're contradicting yourself now. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. That led him to feel that this was the path he wanted to follow, but he. Looking back from years later, he was very clear that these were not realization experiences. They were not enlightenment experiences, but they were very important experiences in his spiritual life, nonetheless. You know, everything has degrees. It's not like you're either, oh, enlightened or you're not enlightened. Everyone has had some moment of what you'd call enlightenment, whether it's looking at a sun, sunset or, you know, playing ball with their child or you know, being with a lover, or reading a particular book, or where you just drop yourself and you're there. But most of the time, those kinds of experiences fade and dwindle and become memories, and we build a whole structure around remembering them. So Zen practice would be not about remembering them, but opening further and further and further into them, where we're living from that more and more. So I'm not saying that's wrong, that's deluded in the sense of completely stupid, ignorant, whatever, but that's not what Zen practice would aim at, which is going, I read this and I had this, wow, wonderful moment, and so I get it, and now I can do whatever I want. That would be delusive and dangerous. So I want to just remind the listener that we, we are kind of using Zen here as as the example in in this discussion of of how spiritual stories... Um, are used or can be used and and the nature of oral narrative and spiritual traditions and the nature of written narrative and spiritual traditions I hope so <laughs> in fact the, you know for me of course the only one I can really speak knowledgeably about is the one that I've you know spent 40 years doing but I hope yeah absolutely I think uh you know, all traditions uh, embody embody very very similar territory most People only know the book aspect, you know, of most traditions today. I think uh, there are strong teaching traditions in Christianity, in Judaism, in Islam, uh, in Hinduism. But most people, uh, I, I, you know, I grew up Jewish in New York City. And I, uh, you know, I love the Old Testament stories and stuff like that. But I also love the stories of King Arthur, and I love the, the Jungle Books of Rudyard Kipling. And we're all a mix these days. So, uh, you know, uh, finding a tradition uh, that does what you need it to do uh, becomes more a matter of choice today than it was in the past, where you just grew up in the tradition, you know, of your community or where you were born. Uh, so that I think makes things more complex for people too. But all traditional stories, I think, at bottom, are teaching stories. You know. Okay, I'd be remiss unless I asked you this question since I got you here. <laughs> Talk for a moment about the nature of writing for oral narrative. Okay. Clarify what you mean. Well, I think there's a big difference between writing to be read and writing to be read out loud or writing to be remembered and then told. Okay. Well, you know, one thing we could say just to start about writing for reading aloud is like um, composing classical music. Reading aloud is like playing classical music. The notes are written and your job is to give them expression. Uh, storytelling is more like jazz where it's recreated anew uh, each time. There is no text. The text is you. Your face, your voice tone, your interaction with the audience, and that's always changing because your story is always evolving. And in part, the audience gives you the great gift of finding new aspects in a story that you thought you, you knew, but it will take different forms with an audience. So I do not write the stories that I tell for the most part. The way it's worked for me is... Uh, 
um, let me think back. Uh, my first books came out in 84 and 85, and those were, the first book was a story, it uh, was a, um, a collection uh, of stories, not all of which I had told. And in writing, you, what you aim for, when you're writing for someone to read, what you aim for is creating like, mm, like a perfect version that will exist without you so that it's, it's just there. It's the best version you can ever create, hopefully, knock on wood and good luck because it's not going to necessarily happen. But uh, in telling a story, uh, what I found was that uh, I would usually tell a story for years before I ever thought of writing it down. And that would be for someone to read or for someone to read aloud. And that changes the story, because when you're telling a story, language is just a small thread. A lot of it is what's seen gesturally, and your silences and your voice tone. But in writing, you're not there. So you have to describe everything in a very different way, and it changes the story. You have to describe or show in the size of the text anger or joy uh, you have to show and tell that he lifted his arm and scratched his head. All the th- you, 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 it changes every form we have to tell a story changes aspects of the story, and it, it'll each have strengths and weaknesses. Each version, but they'll be different. <clears throat> and in uh, I used to basically. Uh, not write a story till I told it, and then somewhere it shifted to writing stories and then telling them, but I never tell them the way I wrote them. The text was simply a way of making it work on the page, and uh, is close to the perfect version of that story I could do. But in telling it, it's like each time it's an experiment, and things will shift and change, and it's and it's fluid. Uh, so uh, I don't know if that's an answer for you. Uh, we'd almost have to get specific, but I've actually rewritten one book uh, three times, and some of those stories appeared in a new book a fourth time, uh, and they're different each time because I got closer and closer to what storytelling experience brought to the story, and it didn't change the sense that on the page you still had to describe things in a different way. But it brought um, greater resonance into the story. Uh, And there's needs of an audience that you don't need to keep in mind when you're writing. And when you're telling, the whole thing is for the audience, and it has to work for that particular group, the one that's in front of you. And that, again, changes the story from it the perfect version you might have created in your head to the perfect version for this very moment and these particular people so it's always shifting on the page once it's down that's pretty much it but in telling a story it'll grow until you take your last breath okay very briefly do you feel that when you're writing a story you know is meant to be told so you're writing it for other tellers to tell are there certain things that you should tell other writers about about writing down a story that's meant to be in the oral narrative tradition, as opposed to writing a story just for, like, a newspaper or an article you know is only going to be read? Boy, that's an interesting question. I write the story for the sake of the story, and I try and disentangle it from my needs or the needs uh, of future tellers. What it's for is the story's life for the reader. Uh, that's as far as I can think it. I have to think, what are the needs of a reader? A reader is someone who's alone, not in a communal space, is quiet. And the the story in written form has to speak to them, whereas a told story has to work for a community in a public experience. And that brings out different aspects. So all I can do is try and be sensitive to the differences between the two. Uh, and like when you're writing a novel, especially, uh, you have to describe everything, the sky, the trees, the rocks, the context, the, the everything that you see in your mind, because the story is an image set of images in your mind, all has to be described. But in telling the story, you're going to demonstrate that, you know, 
It could be the same exact story, but you're going to go, no, you know, and and they'll know you did it. The audience will know you did it in a certain tone. But in the novel, you have to describe the room, the clothing, the everything so that the reader can be in that scene with you. But in a telling of a story, you're, because you're seeing it in your mind, your body and your voice are bringing that scene into the room almost subconsciously. And uh, it's, it's just a different thing. But all I think about is my responsibility to the story to get it to live, to let it live. That's my job. And if it's, a, uh, if it's people who are going to be telling it in the future, I know nothing about that. All I know is that I have to make it work if it's in a book for a reader because a future teller is still first got to be moved by the story as a reader and that's after that it's up to them uh and that's that's you know when i'm a writer uh my job is to simply make it work on the page and it's very different from a told story you can't just take what you tell and put it on a page the same way you can't take what you've written and just think you could repeat that and think you've got a told story. They're just two different uh, lives of the story. Talk about your most recent book. Oh, um, the most recent book is Endless Path, and it's subtitled uh, Awakening uh, Within the Buddhist Imagination, Zen, uh, Jataka Tales, Zen Practice, and Daily Life. And it's uh, available on Amazon? Oh, yeah, it's available on Amazon. It's gotten some uh, great write-ups from uh, specifically Zen, some very... Uh, wonderful Zen teachers who I've given talks from this book in developing it uh, around the country this last year. But what it's a book uh, of is Jataka tales are very, very traditional Buddhist stories that are known to every tradition of Buddhism in every Buddhist country. So we're talking China, Mongolia, Vietnam, Burma, wherever. Um, um, and what they are are stories of the past lives of the Buddha, because it's in Buddhist tradition there is uh, over 550 of these stories, closer to 600. But there were probably thousands in oral tradition. At this point, there are texts that go back to about the fifth century, and what they do is show that in whatever life, uh, well, let me back up a little bit. The person we know as the Buddha who lived 2,500 years ago, was a prince in India, blah, 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 saw suffering essentially and decided there must be a reason why we're alive on this earth and a way to live with some degree of peace in the midst of the anguish of old age, sickness, death, things that we all have to face. And he left his wealthy, privileged life to go out and find a, a, uh, some resolution to this anguish that he was feeling. So... And then he had this big enlightenment experience at, under the bow tree, which is, you know, uh, in India, and then began to teach and taught for 45 years uh, a way of living uh, in harmony with reality and finding peace in it, even in the midst of the impermanence of our own lives. So the Jataka tales are, uh, are purportedly the stories that... Uh, are all the Buddha's past lives as he worked on wisdom and compassion because uh, it didn't just happen in one life. And uh, in in Buddhist tradition, it's seen it took many, many, many lives. And what's interesting about the stories is, is that sometimes the Buddha is shown as like an animal. It's not like he descended from on high perfectly formed. He's He made mistakes. He's, he was a murder victim. He was an acrobat. He was a wealthy merchant. He was an enlightened sage. Uh, he was a, he was king. He was king of the gods. He was a god. He was a tree spirit. He was you know a brave lion. He was a foolish rabbit. He, so the the stories show in every possible life situation, good or bad, you can work on issues of wisdom and compassion. None of it is an obstacle. No matter how difficult or whatever your life is, the story goes. The Buddha had the same life experience at some point and continued working on issues of wisdom and compassion. So the book, Endless Path, is ten of these Jataka tales, one for each of what's called the paramitas in Buddhist tradition. Paramita means perfection, and what they are like uh, generosity, uh, um, uh, Jack Kerouac translated virya, uh, which is a paramita, perfection of vigor, as 
enthusiasm or eagerness, uh, wisdom, kindness, uh, perseverance, strength, and knowledge, stuff like that. It's like Boy Scouts, you know, perfections. But the Buddhist teaching says that we all are intrinsically endowed with these perfections, and yet we have to work on them very hard to have them actually emerge in our lives. It's one of the paradoxes of spiritual practice. You've got it, but to make it actually function in your life is a lifetime's worth of work. So I took uh, ten of the Jataka tales and uh, retold them in ways that uh, I feel are alive, the way I would tell them. Uh, And some of them can be very stiff texts, so it meant really thinking about them for many, many, many years. And then what I did was for each one write uh, a commentary uh, that would be like a commentary on a koan, connecting this story with the unfolding of the realities of our own daily life and spiritual practice in in daily life. And it was... uh, the back of the book is um, a little edition of personalizing uh, various aspects of Buddhist teaching, something that I did when I received ordination in Zen tradition about two, a year and a half ago or so. And it was great fun. It was like saying, let's take this whole big abstract thing and personalize it, find the, the ways of personalizing the tradition, which is what we do in storytelling. So in some ways, I applied my experience as a storyteller uh, to the tradition, and that's what what the book is. So it's ten stories with a big introduction on Buddhist storytelling and how it functions as a spiritual path, and then commentaries on these ten stories that demonstrate them as uh, not just uh, fun things, but wisdom teachings. And every tradition has that, whether we're speaking Native American, uh, Judeo-Christian, Islamic, whatever. And for me, this was my road and it was my interest after 40 years of doing it. You have any other offers or other, you have a, you have a website? Oh, yeah. Uh, my website is just rafemartin.com. That's basically aimed more towards, uh, you know, uh, schools and public storytelling because a lot of my books were successful children's books dealing with uh, mythic traditions and, and story. Uh, and you can also go to Facebook. I have a pro- professional page on Facebook, and I'm always happy to connect with people through either the regular page or the professional one. There's always new books coming out. Uh, uh, there's another book of mine that came out this summer that uh, is a beautiful little book. It's a one Jataka tale book. Uh, uh, it's called The Banyan Deer, A Parable of Courage and Compassion. Probably there'll be some new CDs this year, um, that deal with some of the stuff that I just did at the National Festival uh, about destinies and my wife's family on the Holocaust and my dad flying China, Burma, India, World War II, some of my experiences motorcycling and the importance of taking difficult roads in life, uh, which is what stories allow us to do. They allow us to take hard roads, roads we might not be wanting to take in our actual lives and in our imaginations. We can take these roads by living through the experiences of characters and stories, and we're transformed by them. I mean, storytelling, hearing stories, reading them, can make us braver, uh, kinder, uh, wiser. And for me, this uh, is, is some of the stuff I've explored in motorcycling and in storytelling, which I probably will do a CD of that. And then uh, I think there'll be a CD of Buddhist stories that come out uh, sometime during the winter as well. So... There'll be new things coming along. If you go to the website, you'll see these things posted. For my offer, I just want to remind the audience that I have a free e-course called um, Zen and the Art of Storytelling in Seven Simple Steps. I didn't know about that. (laughs) But I basically ripped off some Zen stories and (laughs) combined the ideas of the basic concepts of being present and how you tell stories. I'll have to go to that and see it. I mean, it's now I'm feeling a little bit of pressure. <laughs> um, I also have currently, I have a new podcast called Applied Storytelling, and that's available through the International Storytelling School at thestorytellingschool.com. And you can go there, and those podcasts, only one of every four is available for free. The other three you have to go and actually pay money to get. And, of course, this podcast project is continuing, and you are welcome to listen to all the other ones that are available, every single one available for free on artofstorytellingshow.com or through iTunes. Rafe, do you have any last thoughts for the international storytelling community on spiritual storytelling, Zen and storytelling, or anything else? Have fun.
<laughs> I mean, really, what could be more fun uh, than sharing stories? And what could be more important at the same time? So many people in our culture never really get to hear stories told to them. They watch television, they go to movies, but they never get to see their own images uh, forming uh, through what stories in words can give us. So have fun with your work and with your storytelling and with hearing and sharing stories. Uh, human beings on this earth have been here in some part, I think, because uh, sharing stories was fun and uh, we should continue having fun with them. I think one thing I want to take away from this discussion today is that we really didn't touch on this, but it's kind of in the context of the discussion that we live in a materialistic United States of America currently and that if you are in a house where the electricity has gone out and you have the matches and a candle, you kind of have a duty to go find the other people and light their candles. And that's essentially what spiritual storytelling is, is it's, is it's the passing of the candle. And I'm, I'm really ripping off that this whole metaphor from my dear uh, teacher, Doug Lippman, who uses that metaphor in his, in his storytelling of lighting, passing the fire from one candle to the next. And that's, that's sort of the role spiritual stories have, whatever your tradition. I hope that nobody listening got distracted by the Zen discussion, because I really believe in my exposure to many different faiths that all of the issues we raised in this discussion apply to almost every other faith. Yeah, let me clarify one thing about that, too. I was thinking about that point about well, what happens when all these stories just get told and, you know, enjoyed and collected and whatever. And I'm thinking, you know, that's fine. Uh, that's fun, too. That's just fine. <laughs> All right, so all the Zen practitioners out there, when you see someone ripping off Zen, you can blame Rafe over here. <laughs> Thank you, Rafe Martin, so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Brother Wolf. It's been a pleasure to be here. This guest has written a post for the blog that can be read at www.artofstorytellingshow.com. This post includes a bio and a link to the guest's website, plus other additional information about our discussion. If you want to respond to this show, you can find this post and share your thoughts through the comment system in the blog comment box. If you wish to join a future show as an audience member, go to www.artofstorytellingshow.com alerts and sign up to the email alert system. You can buy CDs of shows and preloaded iPods on the website. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This show is produced and hosted by me, Brother Wolf, and I am responsible for its content. It is released under a Creative Commons non-derivative and non-commercial license. That means you can copy it and you can give it away, but you can't splice it up or sell it. High-definition versions of this show are considered copyrighted, all rights reserved. Are you willing to show us one of these Korans? Not Korans, wrong word. Koan. Are, are you willing? Wait, stop. Let me do it again. <laughs>